making making contact making contact <laughs> I'm Anita Johnson and this week on making contact we go to Canada to hear the radio documentary show ideas it explores Canada's lesser-known history of enslavement here's their host Nala Ayed it's a commonly held belief in Canada that the practice of slavery during the 17th to 19th centuries was the sinister business of other nations. Our country, for the most part, was the land of freedom for black people. But this would be false, according to historians like Afua Cooper. Yes, there were a few free blacks at the beginning of European colonization. But by and large, from 1628 onward, the dominant condition for black people was one of enslavement. Enslavement, trade in human beings, took place here in what would later become Canada. And slavery is important in the history of black people in this country and in the history of blackness. Because when you are looking at our presence in Canada, then you're more or less talking about a presence of enslavement. The true extent of slavery in Canada is absent from most of our history books, our museums, our collective narrative. Far from a handful of slaves owned by British loyalists, thousands of Africans and Indigenous people were enslaved for 200 years. We are all the ears of the trauma of slavery. For every white person who thinks that a Black person is a threat and a danger, who's probably better off dead or incarcerated, that person's reflecting psychology that was perpetrated in order to maintain slavery. In many ways, our societies economically, and especially in terms of the justice system, still maintain unconsciously the psychologies and politics of enslavement. We're calling today's program Canada's Slavery Secret, the whitewashing of 200 years of enslavement by contributor Kyle G. Brown. And a warning, this program features some offensive language reflecting the historical context and realities of slavery. If you talk to anyone about slavery in Canada, they'll likely evoke the Underground Railroad, the famed network of activists who provided safe houses and helped slaves find freedom. It remains a real and important part of Canada's history, but omits a two-century-old slave trade that's also part of our history. Charmaine Nelson is Professor of Art History at McGill University in Montreal. The Underground Railroad was about 30 years. So the British abolished slavery in all of their empire, including what becomes Canada, in 1833 by an act of parliament. And then the American Civil War breaks down in 1861. It's just that window of time where African-Americans are fleeing north. Okay, so 30 years. Canadian slavery transpires over 200 plus years. So what does it take? We got to think about this. What does it take to erase 200 years of history from the collective consciousness of a nation, but to enshrine three decades. I must admit, I was also in the dark about a lot of this history. And half my family is from Jamaica, which was a slave society for generations. The late Quebec historian Marcel Trudel identified some 4,200 slaves in New France alone. But he and other historians say the number is undoubtedly much higher from families separated and sold at auction blocks at Halifax Harbour to enslaved women 
raped in Ontario, their children born into bondage. It's a long and brutal story. And yet history textbooks have all but ignored it. How is it that over two centuries, so many people could be enslaved and yet leave so little trace? Their very existence buried. I'm on a bus heading from Montreal an hour south to the Benoit family farm, just outside the village of Saint-Armand. With me are activists, volunteers and regular people, mostly African-Canadians. The Black Coalition of Quebec has organized the trip to an unmarked mass grave for slaves. About 230 years ago, this land was owned by Philip Luke, a loyalist who arrived here in the early 1780s and was awarded more than 3,000 acres by the British. So this is the family name of the Luke that we know came up here from Albany, New York State with some slaves, some of his slaves. He was a loyalist. Lay historian Michael Farkas is leading the tour. And a, quite a quite prominent uh, person in Saint-Armand. And his sons and so on, actually, there's, a, there's some Luke that actually were mayor at one point. Thousands of loyalists fled north to what is now Canada, many arriving with their human property. Some slaves were promised freedom, but a number remained in bondage, like those owned by the Lukes. We follow Michael through tall grass over rolling fields to the edge of a forest. Before us, a half dozen dilapidated tombstones are fenced off. The family burial plot. That's got all the Luke family with, you can see still 1789 to 1840. Right. It's like, it's vintage. And then, and you still see that they have tombs. But is this a cemetery where, where slaves were buried? No, no. That Michael leads us to a spot 10 minutes away, to a boulder in the shape of a large whale. Since the late 1770s, it's been known as Nigger Rock, a burial ground for the slaves owned by the Luke family. In 2015, a Quebec commission stripped it of the controversial title, a decision opposed by the Black Coalition of Quebec, who say erasing the name is part of a pattern of burying the uglier aspects of our history. A strong wind picks up as we gather in front of the rock. There's no indication of anything sacred buried here. It's just the rock and there's no tombs. And there's no sign, one that read Negro Cemetery was removed. But that's not the only thing missing. But well, we know that they're buried there, we know black people are buried there. They were buried there, where are the bones? That's the big question. In the early 1950s, Clément Benoit, the father of the current owner, began ploughing the land near the rock. Something got caught under his tractor, forcing the farmer to stop. Human bones. He found the bones and uh, he tossed them aside somewhere without really paying attention where he did or not really. So it's kind of a mystery and that, that's a damn shame because those bones could tell us so much. And those were the remains of former slaves? Yes, absolutely. Former town councillor Marielle Cartier is also at the farm that day and joins our conversation. They did not have the title of slaves? No, because slavery was not allowed here. But he came here with his slaves. 
Yes, he came here, but as such, they were automatically freed. I can't swear to you that it did not take place. I wasn't aware of it. I always thought there weren't any slaves here. No one here was considered a slave. Because as far as you're concerned, there were no slaves here? No. Jamais. Never. No. Cartier is not the only person to contest the idea that slavery occurred in Canada. Despite historical evidence, many Canadians remain unaware or in denial. Afua Cooper is chair of Black Canadian Studies at Dalhousie University in Halifax. I mean, slavery is probably Canada's best kept secret. And many Canadians, obviously not all, will continue to deny the fact that slavery existed in Canada, or diminish it, or minimize it, or don't play it. This points to a systemic situation, denying slavery or minimizing this phenomenon or the practice of slavery in Canada, again points to the erasure of blackness. It's a very interesting situation because black people, because of our physicality, we are visible. You can't miss a black person unless they look white. But by and large, we are visible. On the other hand, in terms of black people's insertion into historiography, into scholarship, into consciousness, we are invisible. So when people continue to deny that slavery existed in in this country for over 200 years, it points to the systemic erasure of blackness in this country and the refusal to deal with the black presence in this country. There is perhaps no greater symbol of erasure than an unmarked grave. Standing before the rock, Haitian-born Marie-Margot Charlemagne is moved to tears. There was no God. There was no one to save them. My Lord, why? Why did they have to suffer? Why did this happen? My God. While indigenous people were enslaved by the early European settlers, prior to the colonists' arrival, First Nations also had slaves. Brett Rushforth is associate professor and chair of the history department at the University of Oregon. One of the fundamental differences between this indigenous practice of slavery and the European practice of chattel slavery that is much better known is that it wasn't meant to be uh, permanent and it wasn't meant to be inherited. And it really wasn't about the production of wealth. It wasn't about the production of commodities. Instead, it was about the production of kinship and the production of a stronger in-group. So where Europeans spent a lot of energy policing the exit routes from slavery, making sure that a slave would remain a slave as long as possible, and that if they ever became anything other than a slave, they would remain subordinate within that society through racial restrictions. Uh, That didn't happen at all in indigenous societies. Instead, there was a forced assimilation. And the intent was, in fact, to make them assimilate into that culture as much as possible. And that made it fundamentally different from European slavery in that regard. Europeans had kind of an opposite approach to that, and that was to perpetuate the slave status. 
And the daily routine violence of European slavery was much, much greater. The slavery practiced by colonists was a commercial affair. Merchants bought and sold slaves. Some families went into debt, buying slaves to cook, clean and mind their children, or to work the fields. Many slaves were highly skilled and worked as blacksmiths, barbers, masons and cobblers. In the 1700s, amidst growing demand for forced labour, French slave raids on First Nations brought violent reprisals. Increasingly, they sought the labour of Africans, who were isolated and posed no such threat. Once here, they led lives of servitude and brutality. Afua Cooper. Making life, quote-unquote, civilised for the pioneers, the European settlers, cutting down trees, making the boats, looking after their children, planting up the farm, providing the labour, providing the unpaid labour for two and a half centuries. And this is what needs to be acknowledged in Canada. We don't want people telling us, well, you know, it was mild because they ate beef or chicken or what have you. We're talking about, within these Canadian colonies or provinces, enslaved Africans who were murdered, who were whipped, who were castrated, who were raped, who had all kinds of violence committed upon their bodies under bondage. You're listening to Canada Slavery Secret on Making Contact. This show is offered for free to stations around the world. You can check us out on Instagram at Making Contact Radio Project, all one word. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Our handle is Making underscore Contact. Now let's continue with our look at Canada's history of enslavement. Quebec Gazette. 29th of January, 1778. Ran away from the printing office in Quebec on Sunday night the 25th. A Negro lad named Joe, born in Africa, about 20 years of age, about five feet and a half high, full round face, a little marked with the smallpox, speaks English and French tolerably. He had on, when he went away, a new green fur cap, a blue suit of clothes, a pair of grey stockings, and Canadian moccasins. All persons are hereby forewarned from harboring or aiding him to escape, as they may depend on being prosecuted to the utmost rigor of the law, and whoever will give information where he is harbored or bring him back shall have $8 reward from the printer. Joe was enslaved by the publisher of the Quebec Gazette, William Brown. And Joe worked on the presses. He would have seen the so-called fugitive ads. But that didn't stop him from trying to escape repeatedly. And each time he was recaptured, he was jailed, whipped, and enslaved again. In reading, just studying the fugitive slave ads and the different types of um, archival documents around them, like ledgers, letters, etc., it becomes clear to me that the average enslaved person would have suffered from what we call today mental health issues. They They could not. It was impossible that they not suffer from that. Just in terms of the indiscriminate nature of violence and the fact that you're always under surveillance. Like you, even if you're not always being watched, you, the whole slave system is set up to make you think you're always being watched, if you get me. So, for instance, in the Fugitive Slave ads, sometimes they just don't say, oh, you know, Joe ran away on Saturday. December 5th, for instance, they'll say he ran away between 8 and 9 in the morning. How do you know that's when the guy escaped unless you're watching him all the time? Brett Rushforth. There was a great deal more of 
independent movement that was allowed, partly because much of the slavery in New France was urban. And so to do the tasks that they had to do, many of them had to move around without a great deal of sort of minute-to-minute surveillance by their master. So they might sell vegetables at the market. They might load a canoe from a warehouse, these various kind of tasks. And at the moment of doing that, they would sort of be on their own. But what I found in the court documents is that enslaved people were being watched by New France colonists. They were being surveilled by each other. There was sort of this shared awareness of whose slave that was and what they were doing. And when something went wrong, people came out of the woodwork and said, oh, well, I saw them doing X or I saw them doing Y. And they knew exactly to whom they belonged. And so there was a a surveillance system that was informal, but it was highly effective because it was very rare for an enslaved person in Montreal or other places in New France to be able to get away from the system, to run, to be able to do a lot of things out of the view uh, of their neighbours. As for Joe, after six recorded attempts of his escapes, the records say nothing more. Fugitive ads only record the quote-unquote successful escapes, meaning you had to escape for a certain amount of time. The owner had to know it and the owner had to want to place the ad. So if they catch you too soon or if they give up on catching you at all, then there is no ad. So with Joe, he could escape 10 times, but there's documentation of six times. But Joe, Joe's ad lists him as, as African-born. So how does he end up in Quebec City? The ships could not make it from Africa to to Canada. So we know then that Joe first would have been initially at least enslaved in a place in the southern parts of the Americas, if you get me. So there are people, too, who are experiencing two displacements. And I've theorized this, this concept called the second middle passage because we really don't think about the ships that would have come up to Canada from the Caribbean. Right. Those same ships I just mentioned that would have primary cargoes of, of plantation produced crops and secondary cargoes of enslaved people. In history books that do acknowledge slavery in colonial Canada, there's a tendency to minimize its brutality. Marcel Trudel, the great historian of early New France, described it as a familial system. And it's really not that. It's cruel and it was violent and it was deadly. If you look at the statistics nearly three-fourths of them died by the age of 20. So this is not a pleasant system. This is not a humane system. Charmaine Nelson. The other thing, too, about this kinder, gentler myth, which I think we really have to just explode because it's just horribly false, is we have to think about what it would have been like for an enslaved person to live out their life in a place like Montreal, Quebec City, or Halifax, where they're living in isolation from their own community, and that's a linguistic community, a cultural community, a spiritual community. So people who would actually survive the Middle Passage, and then they've got dropped, let's say, so you get yanked out of Africa, you get dropped in a place like Barbados. And then for some reason, you get yanked out of Barbados, and someone puts you on a ship and sends you to Quebec City. Like, what the heck did that feel like, right? Because you would have established, in many cases then, a community in the plantation in Barbados, and whether or not slavery was hellish there, you had a family, you had elders, you had a community, which then you were moved again from. So what I'm saying here is that isolation and trauma as separation from culture and yourself, in part, would manifest because we can't even assume that these enslaved people could speak to each other. 
right? Some of them are speaking Spanish, some French, some Dutch. So as horrible as slavery was, again, in the tropical regimes, you know someone who speaks your language. You can find someone who remembers your spirituality, right? In Canada, that is not a given at all. And many times you're living in the home or on the property of the person who's enslaving you in isolation from any other black people or indigenous people who might be able to aid and comfort you. The notion of a gentler form of bondage remained unchallenged for decades until historians started to look more closely. Records such as letters, diaries and runaway ads provide evidence of something else. And what they also revealed is the brutal nature of slave owners because the slave owners were not afraid to actually list the marks, the scars, the deformities of the enslaved people's bodies, many of which came from them from being whipped, from being branded, from losing digits, fingers, toes, etc., due to really horrendous labor conditions. So this idea that slavery was gentler and kinder in Canada, it doesn't bear out in the archive. The regime of cruelty and corporal punishment is widely recognized in the U.S. In Canada, Charmaine Nelson says there's no shortage of archives available. What's lacking are scholars to examine them. This, she says, effectively suppresses histories of Canadian slavery. Our histories. Brett Rushforth. The records that survive undercount the number of slaves. One is the simple matter of terminology. What do you call an enslaved Native person in New France, in uh, early British Canada after the War of the Conquest? Sometimes they were called Pani. But sometimes they were just said to be part of the household. Sometimes they were said to be adopted. And so these various euphemisms for identifying these people in the records made it very difficult to see what their actual status was. Another is that even to know anybody's existence on an individual level, it was mostly reliant on Catholic parish registers, which were quite complete for the French period, less so for the the British period. But they obviously count only those that were Catholic. And so any enslaved people who were not baptized don't show up there. Uh, Court records is a similar thing. It just has to be a coincidence of an enslaved person being at the wrong place at the wrong time, witnessing a crime or something like that. And the final is that there are a great many incentives to hide the presence of these enslaved people. There are taxes that are assessed on the heads of enslaved people. There is also a sort of legal ambiguity to the status of some of these people. So, for example, if Canadians have been at war with the Fox Indians and then they sign a peace treaty, that peace treaty should mean that all of the captives of the Fox Nation should be released. But people didn't want to release their slaves. And so they would call them by other names. They would call them Pani. They would say they were part of the family. Or they would just simply hide that they existed at all. To say the enslaved were part of the family obscures the true nature of bondage. Servants, Panis, Negroes are all euphemisms for slaves. Camille Turner. In the museum, for instance, they talk about slavery. They name some of the slave owners, but they never named any of the enslaved people. They never told any of their stories. It's as if they did not really believe that they were people. And they had stories, and they were worth um, talking about. Okay. Walking the spacious halls of Chimchut Museum, Camille and I practically had the place to ourselves. So here we are in the wing that's devoted to the history of slavery. And it reads here, Windsor and the Underground Railroad. It's a plaque 
on a wall in a kind of a makeshift alley, very dark and narrow. And on the plaque it reads, millions of people of African descent were enslaved in North America until the mid-1800s. Slavery existed in Canada as well as the United States, but it was restricted in Upper Canada, Ontario, starting in 1793, and abolished in British North America, i.e. Canada, in 1834. It goes on to name some of the families that own slaves and says that tens of thousands of enslaved people risked their lives to escape to freedom in Canada until slavery was finally outlawed in the U.S. in 1860. And it's interesting, This what, what are the things that this paints Canada as a safe haven? There was a growing number of people that had to escape from Canada into the northern United States. You heard right. Slaves escaped in both directions. Not only did they escape from the United States into Canada, enslaved people from Canada escaped into the United States. By the 1790s, several states had passed anti-slavery legislation, long before Upper Canada did. So as soon as they crossed the border, they crossed into freedom. So people from Canada crossed into freedom by going across the border into America. And they don't talk about that at all. And while in 1793 Upper Canada banned importing slaves, those already enslaved would remain the property of their masters for life. Or they could be resold, and those born in bondage would not be liberated until their 25th birthday. It was a far cry from abolition. That's perhaps because several members of the Upper Canada government, like François Babi, were slave owners themselves. Similar opposition also blocked abolition attempts in Lower Canada present-day Quebec. But this is all but absent in textbooks and government history websites. And something else contributed to our silence around slavery. British efforts to woo African Americans to their side during the American War of Independence. George Eliot Clark. Great Britain is involved in a geopolitical contest with the American Republic about who's going to be the dominant Anglo power. And so the whole push towards confederation of the British North American colonies is conducted part and parcel with a propaganda campaign beginning in the 1830s that positions America as the land of slavery and Great Britain, the British Empire, as the land of real liberty. This is extremely important politically, geopolitically, because America was going around the world, especially in South America, saying, kick out those kings and queens, become republics, be like us. Now, this is the real liberty, is getting rid of the monarchs everywhere. Britain, of course, being a monarchy, was quite keen on maintaining monarchies. Even if they were repressive, monarchies in their mind were far superior to republics. And one way to prove that republics were evil and bad was to point out that the American Republic was the land of slavery, whereas the British monarchy, defending monarchies everywhere, was the land of the, the, the empire of real liberty. And so, of course, Canada and the Underground Railroad plays into that propaganda campaign beautifully. If you were to ask Canadians for two words that they associate with the history of slavery and Canada, what two words do you think that they will be? <laughs> Afua Cooper. I think it would be the Underground Railroad. <laughs> now, how did you guess that? Oh, <laughs> I just guessed. It's a lucky guess. <laughs> <laughs> and 
because in my questioning and I, I've taken the opportunity to talk with numerous people about this as I've been conducting my research and to a person it seems that unless they're a specialist or, a, or an historian they seem to know only of the Underground Railroad. Now what does that tell Is First of all is that your experience as well and secondly <coughs> what do you think that that says? That's my experience. And what that tells me is Canada has created an image of itself as a doer of goodness and a giver of mercy. And they feel that that's exemplified in the Underground Railroad story. Here, there are these slaves fleeing slavery in the United States. They come to Canada. We welcome them with open arms. They kiss the ground and they live happily ever after. So that puts Canada in a good light. So, of course, that's a story they're going to promote. You've been listening to Canada's Slavery Secret on Making Contact. For other shows and more information about this episode, visit radioproject.org. Thanks to our friends at the Canadian Broadcasting Company and their radio show, Ideas. The executive director of Making Contact is Sonia Green. The Making Contact producers, Monica Lopez, Salima Himarani, and Anita Johnson. Web updates, Sabine Blazin, production assistants, Emily Rose Thorne, and I'm Anita Johnson. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. <laughs>